The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. All right, ready to get into God's Word? A mediocre response. Ready to get into God's Word? All right, all right. All right, here's, here's the thing. We don't really, um, I mean, we've made some plans, obviously, but we really don't know what's ahead of us this year, correct? Okay, this is going to work a lot better today if you just respond when I get you to respond, okay? If you just, just be with me here for a little bit. So we really don't know what's ahead of us this year, do we? No, we certainly do not. Um, and, and no matter what it is, though, what it, whatever plans you have, whatever you're thinking ahead to this year, we're certainly thinking of some things as a church, but even as uh, individuals, as, as couples and families, you're probably thinking ahead to some things this year, and whatever comes, good or bad, because some good's going to come, and those are the things we hope for, and some bad things might come along the way, and we certainly understand that that's very possible, and, um, and no matter what it is, let me ask you this question, do you think that you're ready for whatever it is that's gonna come your way? Do do you think that you're really ready for whatever God might ordain for you this year? Are you you prepared for any mission that he might send you on? Are you prepared for the direction that he might lay out for you? Are you ready for the word that he might deliver to you? Are, Are you ready for the growth that he intends for you? Are you ready for the sacrifice that he might ask of you? Are you really ready for whatever God has for you this year? Now, whatever it is, don't you think it would be wise to be prepared for that? The answer is... Yes, of course, it would be wise to be ready for that no matter what it is. And this series that we're starting out on this morning is really about that. It's, we're going to kind of lock down uh, eight uh, necessary items that we're going to put in our preparedness kit. So no, no matter what comes, and whether it's good or whether it's bad, we're going to be ready for it. We're going to be fully prepared for the thing that God has sent our way. And we're going to start today in Numbers 13 and 14 uh, where a pretty big God thing was in front of Israel. And uh, we have the advantage now jumping into this text. We're going to be in various texts over uh, the course of this series. But jumping into this text, this one really happens a mere weeks after the end of the book of Exodus, which we took the time to study uh, back in the fall. And, and here's the nation of Israel. Now they're on the border of the promised land. They had just received the law of God at Sinai, and God made it really clear, now was the time to make their way to the promised land and and be prepared to go in and possess it. That's where we come to in Numbers 13, and, and what happens is that Moses sends in 12 spies, you may recall this story, he sends in 12 spies to scout out the land, find out what it's like. And when the spies came back, Uh, Ten of them brought a pretty negative report, and two of them brought back a very favorable report. In fact, the report from the 12 spies was all the same. It was the recommendation that was the problem. Ten said, there's no way we can do it, and two said, let's go in and take it now. 
Two had the faith to believe that they could get it done. And 10 saw their faith shrivel up in the face of fortified cities and imposing men who all appeared as giants to them. Two were ready for the big move of God. And 10 were not. Now, I, I don't like that ratio at all. Only one-sixth of them had the faith to believe. Only one-sixth of them were ready for what God had in front of them. As I preach today, as I bring this message, my hope is that more than one in six of us are going to be ready for whatever God has for us. I would like at the very least... I mean, my aspiration is every one of us would hear the word of God and respond to it in a favorable way and get the thing that he has for us. But I'd be happy to flip the ratio and have, have five-sixths of us ready and one out of six of us walk away scratching their head going, I didn't quite get it today. Because the ratio is alarming. That only two of the 12 had faith to believe. Now, I, I, I believe that we have to be ready for a big move of God. And I believe that, of course, because of the big announcement we made last week, because of what I already know to be in front of us this year. And so it applies to our church in a very particular way. But I no less believe that God wants to do something extraordinary in your life as individuals and in your marriages and in your families and in fact, I believe that because those of you that are part of the Harvest family here, because I believe you are part of the church of Christ, you are part of the thing that God is doing here, that what he wants to do in your life individually and as families and what he wants to do in the life of our church, I just believe those things are locked together. And God's gonna do something awesome in your life and in the life of this church this year, and the question is, are you going to be ready for it? And the starting point and what we're going to look at today is this unwavering faith in God. And in light of our text today, Numbers 13 and 14, having an unwavering faith in God means that when God says go, you go. When God says go, you go. So let me pray for us. And then uh, we're going to start working through this text. Uh, Father, we uh, would pray as the man did in the Gospels. We believe, uh, but help our unbelief. Uh, grow our faith. Uh, challenge us as we look into your word again right now. Uh, Father, show us what needs to change. Show us what needs to uh, be altered in our lives Send your Holy Spirit right now to convince us and convict us of these things that we're studying together. And God, these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Having an unwavering faith means that you go when God says go. Uh, let's start with this. Uh, see what you need to see, uh, but go. Let me read the first uh, few verses here. 
chapter 13 of Numbers, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. Then he lists all uh, the names here, verses uh, 4 uh, through 15. He names all of them. Uh, verse 6, you'll notice that he names Caleb, who's going to be pretty prominent in the story. And then a little later on in verse 8, from the tribe of Ephraim, he names um, Hosea. Look down to verse 16. Now these were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Those are the two prominent uh, characters among the 12 spies. In fact, uh, though the names are listed here, uh, if, I, if I were to get you to look up here right now, look up at me, if I were to say, name any one of the other 10 spies, that uh, we just simply don't know their names. But J, J, uh, uh, Joshua and Caleb, we know them because they stand out. In fact, they represent uh, the two most prominent tribes. Uh, Joshua coming from the tribe of Ephraim and, and uh, uh, Caleb coming from the tribe of Judah and, and both of these being the prominent tribes that would emerge in Israel as it grew and developed in the land. One from the south, one from the north. No doubt a reward for their faithfulness from the Lord. Verses 17 through 20, the instructions that Moses gives to them. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land now the time was the season of the first grapes. It was uh, summertime. He wanted them to see everything they needed to see. That's the point of this. He wanted them to, to spy it out, to scout it out, and to bring back a report. He wanted them to see all the fruit of the land, all the good things, all the awesomeness about it, because he wanted them to be excited about what they were going to be possessing. But then he also wanted them to see all the obstacles, all the hard things, all the things that were going to make it difficult for them to take the land. He wanted them to gather all of the information they possibly could about it. And we see the log of that trip, starting in verse 21, so they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Lehohamath. They went up into the Negev. They went through all these cities, saw the descendants of Anak. Verse 23, they came to the valley of Eskol. They cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between the two of them. Those are big grapes. I'm not wrong, right? I mean... Now you go to, you go to like the grocery store, go to Zares, and, and you can tell the difference between like normal grapes and those GMO grapes that are massive, right? You get those grapes, there's no seeds in them, they're, they're about the size of an apple. You know what I'm talking about, real, those grapes, right? You know that somebody in a laboratory has been monkeying with the grape recipe, correct? Th those grapes are not natural. They're delicious, but they're not natural. Well, these ones, these grapes, are, are completely natural of the blessing of God at that time in history, that they were awesome grapes and they beat anything that any grocery store, GMO or not, has on the shelf today. Because they were so big they had to be carried back. 
between the, the two men and a pole carrying back these grapes. They also brought some pomegranates and figs uh, with them. So this is the log of what they did. And then the report. So we've logged everything. This is what we saw. This is, now we're going to tell it to you and give you a recommendation. At the end of 40 days, verse 25, they returned from spying out the land and they came to Moses and Aaron to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. They told him, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. And that phrase, flowing with milk and honey, that was the promise God had given to them. They went into the land, now they're confirming what God had said. This is an awesome place. It's a land of incredible prosperity and blessing. It's everything God said it would be. Verse 28. However, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites, they start to stack up now all the people. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites and Jebusites and Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and all along the Jordan. In other words, every place in the land, there are these people who are very powerful it's an awesome land, but there's some problems. Now, that report has the good, the bad, and the ugly in it. Wouldn't you agree? It's all there. But despite that, despite everything, here's Caleb's recommendation. And you can, what's happening in the crowd now is as people are hearing this report, they're starting to murmur among themselves and talk. Oh, no, my goodness, it's so good, but there's no way we're overcoming the people. And there's all this buzzing going on in the crowd because Caleb says in verse 30, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it. Underline this, for we are well able to overcome it, right? (laughs) Thank you, Joshua who no doubt would have been cheering when Caleb was saying his bid, because he would have been speaking on behalf of both of them. I love his confidence and his faith. He had seen everything he needed to see, but he was ready to go. I do so appreciate here, just to step back for a second and and, and just appreciate God's instruction to go and spy out the land and to see all of this. See, because, because now they could see with great clarity their weakness in the face of the people and the obstacles that were right in front of them. There was no hiding it. Despite all the great things they saw, the problem was God wanted them to see it, but now they were actually fixating on all the negatives. So often we do the same. We fixate on the reasons why we can't do it, why it isn't possible, and they miss the fact that it is in our weakness that God's strength is displayed. It's in our weakness that God's strength is displayed. That was the purpose of God sending them out to spy the land so they would actually see how incapable in their own strength they were of taking the land. It's a test of their faith. 
We need to remember that our chief end is to bring glory to God. And it only happens when what is in front of us is deemed to be impossible and where he carries us through it by his strength. So the due diligence that they went through in spying out the land, gathering of intel about the land and the people was brilliant. It exposed all of their frailties, but it should have been nothing that stopped them from actually going forward. See what you need to see. But go nonetheless. I mean, I think we all understand that this is God's MO. This is the way he works. You think about the gospel. God sent his own son into the world and he sent him in weakness, not in power. You remember the story. He sent him in the most vulnerable state possible. A human infant, dependent entirely on human parents who didn't know the whole story. The plan of God to save the world rested in the arms of a young, first-time mom. Everything about the gospel of Jesus Christ is rooted in God's power being manifested in weakness. Just think about the, the, the powerful of the day who were all kind of told who they are in the story. We're told who they are in the story. The religious leaders in Jerusalem, the, the Roman governor, his soldiers. These are the, the powerful of the day. They couldn't imagine that this lowly carpenter's son from a backwater community in a forgotten province of the Roman Empire, they couldn't get it in their minds that he could be the savior of the world. And once he was pinned to the cross, once they saw to his execution, once he was dead, even his closest followers couldn't imagine anymore that he was actually the Messiah. Their hopes and dreams dying on that hill with their leader. They walked away from the faith that they had expressed. Their hopes and dreams crushed and beaten. If a savior was to come, they believed he would come in power. Because this is the way we're wired up as human beings to think. We would think the savior of the world would come as a conquering king, not as a suffering servant. The whole thing didn't make any sense. God had turned our own sensibilities and what we understand to be true on its head. And we believe this, we fall into it because we base our decisions and actions on what we can see. Hebrews 11.1 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Not, not things that are realized. Things that are hoped for. Faith, the author continues, is the conviction of things not seen. 
I'm convicted, I'm convinced, I'm persuaded, I'm going to act upon even though I don't see it. And Caleb, a man of faith, he saw everything that the other ten spies saw and said, we are well able because he knew that God was well able. Get it? See it? Well, sometimes it isn't what we see so much as what we feel. So let's look at this next. Uh, Acknowledge your fear. Acknowledge your fear, but go. So after Caleb gives his recommendation on behalf of he and Joshua, the other 10 make their recommendation in verse 31. Remember, Caleb had said, we are well able. Then the men, verse 31, who had gone up with him said, we are not able. We are not to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. Now let me pause there for a second. And let me ask you this question. When you're really truly afraid of something, is it not true that you tend to exaggerate what's going on? Is that true? Totally true that we we begin to make the story bigger. Uh, The crisis is greater than it really is. The monsters are are, are darker and louder and and snarling more ferociously. We we make stuff up and that's that's exactly what these guys are doing. This is a land that devours its inhabitants. Do you think that's actually true? I mean, I think that people are living in relative peace. They're they're prospering enough that they've built up walls around their city. They've they've secured their own cities. We we know already the produce is great. These are people that are actually living a, a fairly decent life. They're not devouring one another. This is a good scene, but it's being misinterpreted and exaggerated. And listen, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. Everybody's taller than us. Everybody's a giant. Everybody's bigger. It's horrible. There's no way we're going in. And in fact, they go on in verse 33, and there we saw the Nephilim. Do you remember where they're mentioned previously in the scriptures? That crazy chapter. uh, Is it okay to say that a chapter of the Bible is crazy? Genesis 6 is crazy. And, and honestly, if I were to preach it to you, I, w- I wouldn't know exactly how, who those are, the, these, da- these sons of God and these daughters of men who have relations and this race of giants is created. And it's, all I know is it's there. And at one time there was a race of giants and something crazy took place to make them. That's what I know. There's my interpretation of Genesis 6. Well, these guys, they go back to that and they say, again, an exaggeration. We saw the Nephilim. Those monsters from Genesis 6, they're here in the land. They're making the whole thing up. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And then they impose the opinions of of their own opinions on the others who we have no indication that they were spies. They were going up to people, hey, what do you think of us? We're thinking of invading your country because they say here, and so we seem to them. Do you think they actually went up to people and say, hey, look, we're, we're poised at your border. We're ready to come in. We're going to invade your country. How do we seem to you? Do you think this is going to go well for us? And they're saying, well, you know what? You seem like grasshoppers to us. 
You just seem so small. Look at us, we're giants. It's all exaggeration. They're making the whole thing up because they're in this heightened sense of emotion about the whole thing. Now, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that we ignore the realities that are in front of us, and I'm not suggesting at all that we suppress our emotions. That's a whole different issue that's negative and bad to do. I want to say that their feelings were legit, and that's part of the weakness that causes us to rely on our God. I'm a little afraid, Lord. Would you mind strengthening me, please, for this? See, that's the best place uh, to be. I'm not suggesting that we have or suggesting in any way that Caleb had this, an unrestrained bravado and an ignoring of emotion. But I am suggesting confidence in the plans and purposes of God. I think there's no indication here from the text that Joshua and Caleb were immune to all of this or that they were ignorant about the fact that this was going to actually be a fight. They actually used the language of warfare. They knew that this was going to be an invasion. They knew that they would have to go to battle. There's no ignoring of any of that. They knew the challenges that they would face would be real. But because their eyes were on the Lord and his promises, they knew that they were going to be victorious. I love this definition of faith that we've used many times. It just locks it down in a perfect way and it inserts itself Uh, precisely into what we're saying right here. That faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it, listen, no matter how I feel, knowing God promises a good result. That That is the principle hanging over Numbers 13 and 14. Faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel, knowing that God promises a good result. You see, Joshua and Caleb weren't going to let their emotions lead them. And that's a good lesson right there. Emotions have to follow. Never let your emotions lead you. Never make a decision in an emotional state. Faith comes first, emotions can follow. God created you with emotion, emotion is wonderful, it's part of who we are, it's part of the created order. But they should never, never, never lead us. And that's what the 10 were allowing to happen right here. And the fear of the 10 was infectious and it spread like a virus throughout the camp. Chapter 14 when all the congregate, then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? How many people feel like you're watching a rerun right now of Exodus? Because how many times did this happen? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Really? We're here again? That you think, do you think for a minute that Pharaoh's gonna be, oh, welcome back, guys. It's so good to see you after you destroyed his entire army. He's not gonna be happy about this. They're not even thinking this through. There's no part of this that makes sense. 
to have seen all that they had seen, to react as they're reacting. I mean, this isn't just unfortunate. This isn't just an inappropriate response. It's not just, oh, oh well, I'm, I'm just really sad that these 10 people don't get it. No, 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 this is an assault on God. It is an impassioned rejection of his word. It is an abandonment of their faith to no longer believe him. Verse four, they said to one another, let's choose another leader and go back to Egypt. This, this is... This is mutiny. This is outright rebellion. This is, this is the people saying, uh, we're out on you, God, we're done with you. Moses is your guy, and we're gonna find a new guy, not Moses. We're gonna get that guy to take us back to Egypt. So we are completely rejecting you, your word, your plan, your ways. We're done with Yahweh. Like, don't miss what's going on here. It's that serious. The cascading grief and anger and irrationality built as the exaggerations and falsehoods spread and the crowd mentality took over. They renounced God. And we think it's so unbelievable because we've read the story over and over again. And we go, did, did you not see? I just read it on paper and I just go like, I would get it. Did you not see what God did? Did you not see what he did repeatedly over and over again? We think it's so ridiculous. We think it's so unbelievable. And yet, how often do we hear the call of God in our own lives? How often if we sat in this very place and heard the word of God preached over us and walked away unchanged, walked away determined not to obey what God said to us? How many times have we rejected his clear word to go, to act, to obey, to follow? Do you think it's any less of a rebellion? Any less of a rejection of God? Is it, any, is it any less walking away and saying, you know what? In this thing, you are not my God. I'm going back to Egypt. It's more comfortable there. See what you need to see. Acknowledge your fear. And then this, hear what others are saying. But go. You see, there will always be naysayers in every crowd. Or as uh, Jeannie, our children's director, will say, every party has a pooper. <laughs> I mean, this wasn't, what's going to go on next? This wasn't, this wasn't Moses' first rodeo. He'd been, he'd been around these people long enough to know what was going on and he knew how grave it was and he knew you don't mess with God. You don't mess with him. 
Not like this. So, so look what happens in verse five. So the people have declared their rebellious attitudes, their desire to go back. Verse five, then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. They just, they know what's going on. They just fall down, prostrate before the Lord in prayer, seeking him. Now listen, what they're doing here is the equivalent of, now imagine this happening, right? Roger says something crazy that I determine is blasphemous. I'm just listening to him going like, that is blasphemy against the Lord, which Roger would never say, because he's amazing, correct? People love you. People love you, I love you. But just say crazy, crazy that it would ever be said. But he says something blasphemous and then tell me this hasn't about, you just take a couple steps back waiting for the lightning to strike, correct? <laughs> for sure I'm stepping back because the ground is gonna go open up and swallow Roger whole. Okay, that's what Moses and Aaron are doing here. They, they know that God's judgment is gonna fall on these people, they know it. And so they're getting themselves into a posture of humility and brokenness before the Lord so that God doesn't mistake them for these 10 who have brought this bad report and for the crowd that was now following them. And while they were praying, Joshua and Caleb pleaded with the people beginning in verse 6. Joshua, the son of Nun, Caleb, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the tearing of the clothes was to get their attention and to show their humility and their brokenness. The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. And if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. For they are bread for us. In other words, contemporary version, we're going to eat them alive. We're going to eat them alive. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. The, the protection that he speaks of is the protection that any nation has from the sovereign God for that point in history. God protects nations and allows them to prosper. God does that for uh, nations that we might think would honor the Lord and he does it for nations that we would consider today to even be rogue nations, that God puts a protection over those nations so they can exist in history and advance his overall plan. And what Joshua and Caleb are saying here is that protection is God, gone. God is no longer protecting them or keeping them. Their legitimacy as a people and as a state is now zero. And so we can go in. God's not watching over them anymore they belong to us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us, so do not fear them. Joshua and Caleb heard the people. They heard what others were saying. They heard the arguments. They felt the passion. They acknowledged the objections. They understood the challenges ahead. God is not saying, turn your ear away from these things. Listen to what others are saying but go. Now I love what he said in verse eight, if the Lord delights in us. Literally, that word delights, it literally means that God is smiling on us. You just think about any, any child, this is talking about the approval of God. 
But any, any child of ours, the thing they want more than anything else is mom and dad to smile on them, to delight in them, to approve them. They work really hard as kids to kind of get that. And the funny thing is, no matter how old you are here, you, you know this, we never really actually grow out of this. That we still want the approval of others in our life. And and how much more so that we would have the approval of God, that, that we would have this idea that God is looking down at us and smiling when he sees us. If the Lord delights in us, if the Lord smiles on us, it's whatever every one of us want. And how much do you think that I as your pastor, how much do you think that I want this for Harvest Bible Chapel? That God would look at us as a church, as the body of Christ here, this expression of it, and God would look at us and delight in us. If we want to please the Lord, then, again, verse 9, Joshua says it, only, here's the, here's the way that God's going to be able to smile on you, don't rebel, don't rebel, and don't fear the people. If only we could do these two things, then we'll act in faith, we'll believe what he says, we'll follow his commands, we'll go when he says go, even if other people think we're idiots. I'm perfectly fine with anyone else thinking whatever they need to think about me as long as God smiles on me. Amen? I'm fine with that. Now, the problem in this whole passage is, is, is one that we struggle with around this notion of democracy and the crowd and the concept of majority because we, we have this um, phrase in our mind that majority rules. The concept of democracy is so ingrained in the way we think and this is why this is all so hard. It's so ingrained in us, but it's the primary weakness with democracy, one that we don't talk about a lot, is that the majority is not always right. But we're so concerned about what others think about us, and if there's so many of those voices speaking to us, we then become influenced by that because we think in our mind, how can so many people be wrong? We live in a democracy. We vote on the basis of majorities. The majority, it seems to me, should be right. But the majority is not always right. In fact, it can be argued that the majority is most often wrong. The crowd is almost never a good gauge of truth or rightness. And this account is just one glaring and tragic example of that. You have Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb standing against the ten. And then standing against the entire nation who chose to believe the majority of the spies. Leo Tolstoy said this, wrong does not cease to be wrong because of the majority share in it. Wrong is still wrong. And yet here they are ready. Look at verse 10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. I'm pretty sure that's just there for emphasis because I can't imagine what else you'd use to stone somebody but a stone. I think it's implicit in the word. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting. Uh, to all the people of Israel, God intervenes to save them. 
It isn't a secret, is it, that this series is preparing us for what we believe God has for us as a church in this year. This big move of God to get us into a place of our own. And there are plenty of obstacles, let me tell you. If you haven't already driven through the property or looked at the website and looked at the pictures and thought about it, or if you haven't already been in the building, let me, uh, let me give you some of the obstacles that are in the land in the interest of full disclosure. Uh, we were ideally looking for a site that would be about six acres minimum because we, we know that if you want to build a, a building of uh, adequate size and you want to have a little bit room to expand that at some point and you want to have adequate parking and maybe a little bit of green space, that six acres would really be the minimum. Finding that in the city was going to be a problem because it was going to be not less than $3 million to get that kind of land and probably a lot more. So, uh, so we settled on 7 George Street, and instead of it being six acres, it's uh, two and a half. A little less than that, actually. Less than two and a half acres. And so, so that limits us. It limits us in terms of what we can do on the property. We're not likely to ever be able to change the footprint of the building itself and expand it. And, um, and, and the parking is what the parking is, and we're going to make some alterations and change things around a little bit so that we can, we can get enough parking spots on the property... And uh, coupled with parking that's available on the two side streets that we're on, uh, we're going to have enough parking to accommodate the number of people we anticipate having at the maximum on the property at any given time. But it's not a perfect, perfect situation. It is one of the obstacles that we face. Do you want to know another one? Are you enjoying this? Hey. Oh, I didn't think about that. Now I feel so much worse about it. Don't be among the 10. I'm telling you, I'm telling you everything about it. It's just so much fun having Brian here. <laughs> Let me tell you another one. We, this building here, as I understand it, is about 50,000 square feet. 50,500. We don't use every part of it, and it's not all efficiently designed. But here's the thing. When you have 50,000 square feet and the people that we have and the number of services, you just kind of all spread out. Everybody just kind of spreads out. And we're able to just use all the space that we have to its maximum, have lots of extra space so we can all move around and all be you know, perfectly comfortable with one another and keep our personal distances and all of that. And, and so we're probably using about 35 or 40,000 square feet for sure on weekends. And uh, this building uh, completely built out will be about 27,000 square feet. So we're all going to get a lot closer to each other, brother. We're going to have to be a lot more comfortable with one another um, in the coming days. Because we're going to be more efficient about how we use the space and everything. That's just another obstacle that we have. Uh, we believe that our zoning is fine, but we're surrounded by commercial businesses and some industrial space across the street. And uh, we think the zoning is okay. Initially, it looks like that, but we still have to talk to City Hall. We still have to go through processes. It's still an obstacle. It's something that's sitting there. And neighbors could still object to the fact that a church is going in the midst of this particular neighborhood. That's just another obstacle. And those are the three easy ones. Because you know what the fourth one is. It's the biggest one of all. It is how are we going to pay for it? Because at this point, the project is going to be $6 million. We have a million. Somebody help me with the math. What do we have to raise? Oh, five. Five, how, five thousand? Five, five, five million. Five times, approximately, five times the annual budget of our church is what we need to raise. And we need to have figured out at least part of that before April 1st. Uh, the clock, can you hear it ticking? The clock is ticking to be able to buy that building. That's a massive obstacle. 
It's a big obstacle. But there's not a single thing that I shared there. There's nothing on that list that God cannot overcome. Correct? Not a thing. Because if the Lord is leading us to acquire 7 George Street, then God is going to give us all that we need to overcome every single one of those obstacles. Because I believe that God wants to smile on us. I believe that God does delight in us. To the extent that we don't rebel, to the extent that we don't fall into fear, God will indeed delight on us. He will if our faith is unwavering and if we go when he says go. All right, in the, in the moments that we have left, a few warnings to close this out. If your faith wavers, if it wavers, there's some problems attached to that. If your faith wavers and you don't go, please understand that it will take others down with you. Whether you want it or not, you you bear the responsibility of living by faith or not living by faith. No matter how you decide to live your life, there's a responsibility attached to that. And how that affects the people around you, both negatively and positively. Verse 11, chapter 14, the Lord said to Moses, now you're getting the Lord's feelings about all of this now. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they hate me? Some of the translations here. Uh, How long will they reject me? How long will they provoke me? How long will they spurn me? How long will they treat me with contempt? This is how God really feels about them. How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? Then he says this in verse 12. I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them and I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. The second time that God has said this to Moses, I'm just gonna wipe the slate clean. I'm killing every single person in the nation. They're all gonna die. I'm gonna start with you, Moses. The sons of Moses will become the children of promise. No longer the sons of Abraham. It takes other people down with you the faithlessness of the 10, their wavering faith, now threatened the entire nation. Now instead, our unwavering faith, when we have that, it makes the difference in such a positive, God-glorifying, God-delighting-in-us kind of way. It affects you and the way you live, but it's going to affect everyone around you. If you're a husband, it's going to affect your wife. If you're a wife, it's going to affect your husband. If you're parents, it's going to affect your children. We have people in this room who came to faith in Jesus Christ in this place. They're the first generation of believers in their home, and they have children, and and the impact that this is now going to have on their children and their yet-to-be-born grandchildren and their yet-to-be-born great-grandchildren, and as that, it's just, again, a multi-generational blessing that is being set in place when a mom and a dad decide they're going to live by faith, and they're going to go when God says go, and they're going to have the kind of faith that's unwavering. love that we set all of that in motion simply by living by faith as a member of this church if you're part of a small group your unwavering faith builds the faith 
of others in the group. Your small group is so important in this regard as, as we do life together, knowing that we're better when we're together, building the uncommon community that we're seeking to have here at Harvest. So that when my faith, when I'm in a small group and when my faith is wavering a little bit and I'm making some bad decisions, when it's becoming hard, when the road in front of me is difficult, when there's some fear and emotion beginning to take root in my life, I've got someone beside me who's in a much better place and their faith is unwavering and, and they're strengthening me, praying for me, speaking truth into my life, walking with me in the journey. We need that. If you don't have that, you need to find a way to get it. I love in this story, we know that the vast majority had abandoned their faith at this point, but here was Moses and Aaron being faithful and praying to the Lord and interceding for the people. And we have Joshua and Caleb who'd seen everything but brought back a favorable report, let's go. So even though the entire nation was against them, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb, at least they had each other. They, that was their small group. And they could strengthen and encourage and bless one another with everything that was going on. And what of those who don't even know Christ yet? Will we not draw others to faith in Christ when our faith is genuine and unwavering and when God says go, we go and people who don't know Christ will see that and it will be infectious in the best way and draw them into that same faith in Jesus Christ. If your faith wavers and you don't go, it's going to take others down with you. It doesn't have to be that way. And then in verses 13 through 19, Moses intercedes and pleads for God's mercy and grace. And God gives it. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. If you brought up this people in your might from among them, then they will tell the inhabitants of this land that they... Uh, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, have seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he's killed them in the wilderness. Now, Please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. God, you've been forgiving them all the way along. You've been patient with them all along. Please continue to be patient with them and forgive them. He pleads for God's mercy and grace and God actually gives it to them but not without consequence. And so when your faith wavers, notice this also, it brings consequences with far-reaching effects. In verses 20 through 35, I won't read through all of that, but God relents and yet he says the consequences would still be meted out. In fact, what he pronounces over them is that no one in that generation, 20 years and up, everybody who made the decision not to go into the land, every single one of them would die in the, in the wilderness. Not one of them except Joshua and Caleb would be able to enter the land. It's a harsh 
harsh punishment. God forgave them. He relented of his judgment, but consequences still had to be meted out. God forgives. And I think a lot of us know this. God forgives. But his forgiveness does not necessarily negate consequences. And there are more than a few of us in this room who made decisions in the past that we know we have the cleansing of the blood of Christ for those decisions. We know we're forgiven. We know that. And yet we still face the consequences of those decisions decades later. That's what's happening here. The faithlessness of the ten It didn't affect the unwavering faith of the two, but they all felt the consequence. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness. And when you have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, the circumstances that you face, the consequences that continue to come in your life, those things will have no effect on you because all that matters is your obedience to the word of God. Consequences have far-reaching effect for the ten. It meant that they would be summarily dealt with. In verses 36 and 37, they are killed with a pestilence. Unwavering or wavering faith, rather, uh, brings consequences with far-reaching effects. And then this final warning, when your faith wavers, it eventually leads you to a point of no return with God. And in verses 38 through to 45 to the end of the chapter, these people presumed to go. The people mourned greatly in verse 39. They decide now that they're going to go up and take the land even though God had said, no, it's not going to happen. The end of verse 43, because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But listen, they presumed to go up and they were soundly defeated. There's an attempt at repentance, but you can write over this chapter, uh, too little, too late. Too little, too late. And the message ends with a stark warning that God's grace is limitless in quantity. But in terms of its availability, it is limited. There is an end to God's mercy and grace poured out to us. There is a point at which we can get where we have presumed that God's grace is still there and it's not for us because we've stepped over a line and that's what happened with the nation. Don't get to the place where God's patient runs out with you. Don't take others down with you. See the far-reaching effects of a wavering faith and don't get to the point of no return. No matter what, go. When God says go. A few weeks ago, uh, Dan opened up our year with a message. And he had us fill in these cards. And if you remember this, some of you probably still have these tucked in your Bibles, but these resolved cards. And I, I wrote this. The point of growth that I really needed in this year of preparation that we have in front of us, I Uh, Todd Dugard resolved to live my life for the glory of God. And this is what I put down. uh, To live by faith. To live by faith and not by sight. I'm just, I'm sharing with you what my growth point is. what 
want to see God do in my life, and I believe that he's going to do it this year in a pretty spectacular way. And that's why we've started here with this message about the 12 spies, so that we could see in this year of preparation that the first thing we need is to have this unwavering faith in our God. Because I want to be like the two and not like the ten. I want to have an unwavering faith so that when God says go, I go. How about you? Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.